I first came to Wellsprings in 2013. Did you know that was four years ago? (laughs) I'm realizing that now. And when I first came to Wellsprings, I was here, as some of you know, as an intern, ministerial intern. A couple years ago, we had another student who was coming to check us out. He was interested in coming to be an intern here. His name was Casper. A couple of you met him. And he ended up not deciding to do his internship here for reasons that were more about his personal life, his husband, his husband's work, where they wanted to be than they were about Wellsprings. But I remember as he was checking us out and considering coming here to take on that space that I had occupied as intern, Ken asked me at one point, how, how are you feeling about this? And I said, I'm, I'm prepared to have everyone decide they love Casper more than me. <laughs> it was kind of a joke, but the truth is I don't really know how I would have responded. And I thought of that moment, that story, when I read the book that I am going to share a little bit with you about today. Reverend Ken and I are doing a message series for the next few weeks called Stories with Soul, where we dig into some of the wisdom that you can find in children's books and children's literature. I think we forgot to mention, actually, last week, our Youth Spirit program with Miss Carol, our Youth Spirit coordinator. They're going to be talking about the same stories with the kids in Youth Spirit. So you guys, if you have kids in your family or kids that you know here at Wellsprings, you can talk after the service a little bit about today's book. But this book is one that Carol actually recommended to me. It's called Julius the baby of the world. I'll tell you a little bit about these characters. On the right-hand side there, you'll see that in this family, this family of little white mice, that little girl there is Lily. And you'll see Lily's parents and Lily's mom, who has a bun in the oven. When the book begins, it's pretty clear that before her little brother was born, Lily was the best big sister you could possibly imagine. She would rub her mama's belly and talk to her little brother. She would sing him songs. She told him stories. She said, I can't wait to meet you. I can't wait until you're here. I'm so excited, little baby brother. But when Julius was actually born, things changed. Just a little. There's Julius. He's as adorable as everyone hoped and expected. Lily said his parents would pick him up and they would kiss his pink little wet nose and they would admire his round black eyes and stroke his soft white fur. And yes, admittedly, it's a little precious, but her parents, loving their child so much, would say together in unison, Julius is the baby of the world. And Lily would go, Disgusting. (laughs) Lily would say things to her parents like, after Julius goes away, can I get my room back? After Julius goes away, can I talk like a normal person around the house, not have to be quiet all the time? Her parents said, Julius isn't going away, Lily. This book could really have an alternate title, A Thousand and One Ways to Be Passive Aggressive, brought to you by Lily. She tried to make him disappear. She created spells. And when that didn't work, she would just pretend that he didn't exist. 
Her parents would say to her, we want Julius to grow up to be just as smart and clever as you, Lily. So we have to help him by counting the numbers and singing him the alphabet song, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And the book shows that as soon as her parents left the room, she would peer over his crib and sing, A, J, K, R, L, M, T. (laughs) Petty. She's petty, this girl. Is it wrong that I kind of love Lily? She is so in her feelings about this. She is so embracing her experience of jealousy with her little brother. It's rare in life that we get to behave this badly and be met with so much love and grace. Because uh, Lily's parents, they understand what's happening here. And all they do to respond is shower her with more love. They shower her with hugs and kisses and compliments. They give her treats. They let her stay up 15 minutes later past bedtime every night. They even let her drink juice from the antique china. But nothing works. She keeps complaining. She starts to moan about the unfairness of it all. She says, Julius blows a bubble, and it's all, oh, can you believe it? I do the exact same thing, and it's, Lily, let's mind our manners, please. Her parents keep trying, and they say, Lily, why don't you put those theatrical skills of yours to good use and tell your little brother a story? She says, okay. Julius, the germ of the world, by me. I'm going to read you the whole story, short. Once upon a time, there was a baby. His name was Julius. Julius was really a germ. Julius was like dust under your bed. If he was a number, he would be zero. If he was a food, he would be a raisin. Zero is nothing. A raisin tastes like dirt. The end. The story earned her ten minutes in the uncooperative chair from her parents. So it's funny. It's very funny. As adults, right, we can laugh at how Lily expresses herself. But she is clearly feeling some strong emotions about this change in her life, in her family. We know what this can feel like for us when things around us are suddenly unfair, when we don't want something to change. Maybe when we're afraid of losing something really precious that we have. There are strong emotions that can come along with that. There can be anger and bargaining and sadness. There can be real grief. When things change and we start to realize sometimes just how much we have to lose, it does help so much to be met with love in those moments. There is a pretty well-known man who gave a talk this week that was a bit of a surprise. You might know him, His Holiness Pope Francis. He surprised the TED conference 
technology, uh, what is it, technology entertainment and design, I think is what TED stands for. It's a series of conferences that have been going on for years where people usually come in person and stand on a stage. The Pope was piped in to the TED conference in Vancouver, Canada, shocking the whole audience there. He talked a little bit about what it means to greet pain and change with love and tenderness. The theme of the conference was all about this. It was called The Future You. And the title of his talk, Why the Only Future Worth Building, Includes Everyone. He's a universalist, this pope, I'm telling you. He said, what we need in times of mounting change and loss, like we are living through right now, times when we, maybe some of us for the first time, are realizing what's really at stake, is a revolution of tenderness. A revolution of tenderness with each other. Tenderness is something that often gets relegated to the category of softness and weakness, not of strength. But tenderness, he says, brings a powerful connection between people. It brings the kind of solidarity, actually, that we really need to overcome a culture that in so many ways treats any of the people, all of the people, any part of our planet around us as waste, as things that get in our way. Tenderness is an antidote to seeing a person or a living thing as nothing more than trash. The part of his talk that struck a chord with me was actually not his own words as much as one portion of this TED talk where he quoted another famous Catholic teacher, Mother Teresa. He quoted her saying, one cannot love unless it is at their own expense. One cannot love unless it is at their own expense. They don't put that on the Match.com ad, do they? Seriously, I've I've never seen a Match.com ad that talks about how love costs us something. Your match is waiting for you, and he's going to make you live in a house that's 10 degrees colder than you want it to be for the rest of your entire life. Love costs us something. Your match is waiting for you, and you're going to take that well-paying job that you hate so that she can go back to school. Your match is waiting for you, and you're going to care for him when he gets older. You're going to bathe him when he can't do it himself. Love costs us something that is very real. And this is the kind of generous love that Pope Francis is talking about that isn't easy, that really does exact a cost from us. There is a hymn that we sing in some of our Unitarian Universalist churches called There is More Love Somewhere. Do any of you know that hymn? There's more love somewhere, a couple of you. I think it's hymn number 95 in the gray hymnal, which we don't keep here at Wellsprings. 
The hymn lyrics are very simple. Four lines. There is more love somewhere. There is more love somewhere. I'm going to keep on until I find it. There is more love somewhere. It's a hymn that is included in our hymnal, but it's from the black church tradition. It's hard, actually, when you do the research to figure out exactly where it came from. It probably is one of those songs that has no one author, but that arose from the common shared experiences of people who were seeking something that they did not have, who were seeking to find love and hope and faith and joy in a world that was not always providing it for them. And this hymn, There's More Love Somewhere, started a bit of an unintentional trend. When one of our congregations up in Boston decided to change the words, they started to sing it as, There is more love right here. There is more love right here. I'm going to keep on because I found it. There's more love right here. Now, I get that. I get how we want to express, sometimes in our spiritual communities, how we have found something beautiful and sustaining. And this change sparked a bit of a debate amongst our congregations because, first of all, that's not what the song is about, right? Maybe you could write a new song if you want to express that. But second of all, it really does change not just the meaning of the words, but the meaning beneath it. There's something to me that is a little bit less faithful about the right here version of that song. There's something that, yes, calls on that beautiful experience that I hope we all have had in our lives of being found, of being in the right place, of receiving a gift, but we will all get lost again. We will all lose again. We'll lose things and we'll lose people that we've found. I think some of the danger in focusing on what's right here and focusing on celebrating the love that we've found is that when we focus on that, we run the risk of clenching our fists around it a little too tightly, of keeping that feeling only for us. There can be so much tightness around being afraid to lose. So much tightness that leads us to be unable to be with what's changing all around us. We can get stuck in the idea that what we need is right here and then it can't look any different. And we also can't find it anywhere else out there. So things should stay as they are. And that feeling can actually end, us, end up making us feel trapped. Trapped and stuck in the good thing that we found because we are not able to share it with anyone else. All this stuff was pretty real for Lily in the book. She's a small mouse, so this was pretty huge for her these changes and these emotions. She was all excited for her brother before he arrived, but then when he got here, she realized that his presence did bring a loss 
of something she'd known. It did ask her to give something up and pay a cost to change. So what helped Lily in the end? Well, she continues to have a pretty tough time with her brother, especially when her parents decide it would be a great idea to throw a big party to celebrate him. They invite all their friends and all their relatives, their whole family. They make cake. And then Lily's cousin Garland creeps over to Julius's crib. And Cousin Garland looks over the edge of Julius's crib and says, Ugh! Look at his slimy fur and his beady little eyes. I think he needs his diaper changed. Disgusting. I picture Lily doing one of these. <laughs> Excuse me? This is why I love her. She says, Stop, Cousin Garland. I am the queen. Watch me closely. And she picks up little Julius, and she kisses his wet pink nose, and she admires his small black eyes, and she strokes his soft white fur. And then she turns to Cousin Garland and says, Your turn. Kiss, admire, stroke. (laughs) Cousin Garland does what she says, and she says, Now repeat after me. Julius is the baby of the world. Julius is the baby. Louder! Julius is the baby of the world. Cousin Carlin says, Julius is the baby of the world. And the book says, from then on, he was in everyone's eyes, especially Lily's. I think that sometimes when we see what that clenched, tight fist that lack of generous spirit looks like on someone else, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for how we are choosing to live our lives. And then we get to make a new choice. Choosing generosity is not always easy, and it doesn't always feel good. Because if it is that true, generous love, the kind that Pope Francis was talking about in his talk, it will come at a cost. I do think that this kind of generosity, honestly, though, is something that we all need a little bit more practice with. Because our world sets us up to practice a much more shallow and transactional kind of generosity. Those are the kinds of generosity that we have multiple opportunities to practice kinds of generosity that are really more about giving and taking agreement, contract, purchase. I get this if I give you that. And that kind of exchange, that's valid. That's a thing that we can do. There's a place for it in our world. But it's not that deeper kind of generosity that really asks us to give without knowing what we might get back, without being sure of a benefit on the other side for us. I haven't always been very good at practicing that kind of generosity. It's hard to practice when you're used to scarcity, when you're afraid that you won't have enough. But lately, 
I have found myself learning something new about this kind of generosity. This is my friend's little girl, Sydney, right here. Yep. She's the two-year-old daughter of my friends Ben and Sarah, who I've known for a very long time. And I've talked about her before here at Wellsprings. When Ben and Sarah had Sydney, I offered something to them. I said, Wednesdays are my day off, and I would love, if you guys need help with childcare, to watch her. Any Wednesday that you need, just let me know. For free. Now, here's what I thought I would get when I made that offer. One, I thought I would get some baby snuggle time. I don't know if you're looking at the same picture as I am, but this girl does not snuggle. Okay? Her nicknames are Monkey and Sydney Roo for Kangaroo. She is in motion constantly. I have never seen her snuggle, and I've known her since she was three days old. Maybe she's capable of it, but I've never seen it happen. So I didn't get that. No baby snuggle time. I also thought that I would get maybe, you know, a, a chance to meet some single dads at the playground. So <laughs> knock on wood, but not yet. That hasn't happened yet. Let's be real. And the third thing that I thought I would get out of this deal was stories for preaching. So check, that one actually worked. <laughs> but here's what I've actually learned. Two-year-olds are fascinating and terrifying at the same time. The interplay between who they are and their will and all those influences of the world around them, everything that you say to them, everything that you do and teach them, they're like little fragile butterflies, and you realize in every moment that you could crush them or help them fly. It's incredible. And it also leads into the second thing I learned which is that perfect parenting is totally impossible. I knew that intellectually, but there is no way, I realize this now, that you can have a game plan for everything that your child is going to experience. You cannot have a list of all the things that, is going to, that are going to happen in their lives and all the ways that you're going to perfectly respond to that in the moment, let alone if you're parenting with a partner, trying to, trying to get on the same page about all of that before it happens and then remember it. That's... Yeah, that's not going to happen. This uh, came home for me when I was watching Sydney one time just before Christmas, and her parents had a Christmas tree up with lights. She was just under two at this point, and she said, Lee, lights on. I said, oh, okay. And I went, and I found the little plug next to the tree, and I plugged it into the extension cord, and the lights came on. And Sydney looked at the lights for a couple seconds, and she looked down at the cord, and she walked over to the cord, she unplugged it, and she plugged it back in. And I realized, I just taught her about electricity. <laughs> that wasn't in my plan for the day. Now I'm going to teach her about electrical safety <laughs> before her parents get home. <laughs> and the third thing that I've actually learned from this gift that I gave is that love itself is a totally mysterious gift. I never said I love you to Sydney. I'm not in her family. I don't know her all that well, right? 
But the first time she said it to me was maybe a month and a half ago when I put her down for a nap. And she looked up at me from her crib and said, I love you, Lee. I'm not a part of her family. Her parents don't have me on FaceTime saying, say I love you to Auntie Lee, right? So I have no idea what that means to her. I have no idea what she thinks love is. So I'm left with the thought that maybe there's just something about me that she loved. Maybe there was just something about Lily, something about Julius that their parents loved. And maybe once Lily could trust that love, that it was there, that it was a mysterious gift, that it could grow with their family, and that it wasn't going to go away. Maybe when she could trust that, she could turn around and she could share it with someone else. Maybe love is not something finite. Maybe we never have it or don't have it. Maybe if we open to the flow of it around us on both ends, flowing in and, yes, flowing out, then we can be a part of it. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of mysterious gifts, power that gave each of us this life, a life that none of us asked to receive, that none of us earned. May we live as much as we possibly can in faithfulness to that spirit, with gratitude for what we've received, with an open hand that doesn't hold it so tightly that it suffocates, but that lets it move and breathe and flow into and out of this world. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their hearts today. We say amen.